Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow-your-own-food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Grace Gershuni to talk about her experience with the organic revolution. Grace is widely known as an author, educator, and organic consultant. In the 1990s, she served on the staff of the USDA's National Organic Program, where she helped write the regulations. How cool is that? She learned much of what she knows through her longtime involvement with the grassroots organic movement, where she organized conferences and educational events and developed an early organic certification program for the Northeast Organic Farming Association. She currently teaches in the Green Mountain College Online Masters in Sustainable Food Systems program and serves on the board of the Institute for Social Ecology. She has a Masters in Extension Education from the University of Vermont with a self-designed concentration in ecological agriculture. That's also cool. Doing business is Gaia Service. She works as an independent organic inspector. She also does consulting for private and nonprofit clients on all aspects of organic certification, developing related standards and certification systems and training programs. A reformed market gardener, Grace still grows her own veggies and chicken in Barnet, Vermont. Welcome to the show today, Grace. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. Right back at you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, it's been a long path. I'm, I've, I've been around the block a few times, and I can probably tell you that the reason I wrote the book that I'm, that I'm trying to get out there now mm-hmm. is to tell that story and to tell how I arrived at where I am now and what my reasoning was I had every step of the way and what happened. Uh-huh. So the book is called Organic Revolutionary, a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation. And it it really provides a timeline not just of my own life story, uh-huh. but of the evolution of the organic movement into... Mm what it is today, which I was a major participant in for many years and still sort of speak around the margins of the movement. So can you give us a a timeline on your involvement here? When did it start? Well, it it really started, it probably started in childhood, (laughs) listening to to my story, to stories, but I, I grew up at an urbanite uh-huh. with no much, not much clue about food or agriculture at all, and then uh, went to college in the 1960s, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> in New York City, and ended up wanting, deciding that I needed to move to the country and learn to grow food, mm. and so I was part of that you know, counterculture back to the land movement in the 1960s and early 70s. I, right. I moved to Vermont in uh, 1973 and had my first garden. And I wow. talk about the experience of that first garden um, in my book. It was just, you know, it was a totally, totally amazing experience and hooked me forever on working with soil and growing things yeah and so that was a pivotal moment and one thing led to another I got involved with um, the early newly organized uh, NOFA which at that time was called the Natural Organic Farmers Association and is now called the Northeast Organic Farming Association uh, which began as a Vermont and New Hampshire organization, bi-state organization, and is now encompasses seven states in the Northeast. And uh, I'm actually getting ready to go uh, speak at the winter conference for NOFA New Jersey oh, this nice. weekend. Yeah, and we'll be back home in the Vermont conf- winter conference in. In a couple of weeks after that, there are also chapters in uh, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, wow. and New Hampshire. And right. each of them has has a winter conference, and there's a summer conference that all of them can attend, and many, mm-hmm. many people do, that's held in Massachusetts in oh, August. Cool. All right, so we're, we're in the mid-70s. 
and you, yeah. you know, you're you're back to the land movement and you're gardening now. Mm-hmm. What happened? Yeah. What happened next? Well, I, I, uh, as I said, I, my neighbor up the road was one of the founders of NOFA. Ah. Um, just so happened, mm-hmm. a guy named Robert Hurrier. And my garden was right on a paved road, which there weren't many of <laughs> in our town. Right. So he kind of saw what I was up to and started recruiting me to join the organization. And the first thing I got involved with was actually organizing a farmer's market in 1975. And I I tell that story in the book, too. I mean, one of my great epiphanies was that uh, you can't make any money growing vegetables. You have to sell them. Oh, yes. And, uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this the uh, original intent of the organization really was to grow food for the revolutionaries in the cities and the co-ops and, you know, and that wasn't really working out to be a sustainable business venture. (laughs) Yeah. So at any rate, that was kind of the beginning of the, the Renaissance of farmers markets in Vermont and Uh elsewhere as well. Mm, Wow. And the market that I organized back there, 40 years ago, it still exists in nice. the town of Newport, Vermont. Yeah. And so I'm pretty proud of that. Cool. Yeah. And what happened next? <laughs> yeah. There were various uh, various projects that I got involved with, uh, but one volunteer effort that uh, that I took on, I think it was it was 1977 when they were talking about organic standards and uh, mm. and creating an organic certification program for NOFA. And they advertised in the mimeographed newsletter <laughs> for somebody to coordinate that program. And I was the only volunteer. <laughs> wow. So I got it. And so that was what I call the beginning of... Having a, having a, the gum of certification stuck to the bottom of my shoe. Shoe! Oh my gosh! There I... you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me just so kind of. I I got to, you know, I learned a I learned a whole lot, and you know, it it was an amazing time, an amazing experience, mm-hmm. and again, I tell a lot of stories about what what transpired in that process. And, yeah what the arguments were and the discussions and how minimally it was it was supported in the early years and when it changed and why it changed when did so, it change Let's... well i i you know one of the key years that uh when a lot of things started to change was 1984 mm-hmm. and i I call it the year that Big Brother came to Vermont. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting that 1984 is one of the most popular books right now. Right. <laughs> Go figure. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I won't, I'll try to avoid as much political commentary as possible <laughs> here, but it's it's inevitable. So that year, uh, one of the first, probably the first organic 
fresh vegetable wholesaler who was based in Maryland came to Vermont with his consultant looking for organic producers who could who could oh. deliver quantities of fresh organic produce in the summer when the mid-Atlantic wasn't very good for growing things like lettuce and broccoli and mm -hmm. cabbage and stuff like that and knew that we had some really good growers in Vermont, came up to Vermont to look for people who were willing to sign up and for wholesale contracts. Right. And he was requiring that they undergo organic certification in order to sell to him. In 1984. In 1984. Wow. Because this is, this is really the whole point of organic certification is that it gives some kind of guarantee to, you know, to consumers who are not, who don't know the farmer, who are going through a, a middleman, who mm -hmm. are purchasing from a, a, you know, a broker or right. a distributor or a retailer that this is what it says it is. So, um, and his his consultant, a guy named Tom Harding, was starting, wanting to pilot a, a new certification program that would be a national program. Mm -hmm. And so after some discussion and negotiations, he agreed to hire me to help develop that program, which is oh. called which is OCIA, the Organic Crop Improvement Association. It is now a major certifier, one of many. Right. And uh, so I, of course, it was Big Brother and the Organic CIA that came to Vermont that year. <laughs> anyway, that was, of course, uh, that was the first time that we had lots of people eager to get certified. I mean, yeah. by lots, I mean... More than 20. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was the beginning of something that became, that was also the year that a group of people came together to start some kind of trade association mm -hmm. for organic. And that organization sort of overlapped with the OCIA effort, and there was a lot of controversy, confusion, and <laughs> competition going on, Yeah. but that was the beginning of what is today known as the Organic Trade Association. Okay. And so, and I was involved in both of those, mm -hmm. all of that, and sort of got sucked up into more of a national organizing effort at that point. So, you know, that and there there were lots and lots of controversies. All bad. And you know, the small the small scruffy organic growers, alternative types, many of us socialist termites, etc. Uh-huh. being confronted by the suits, the business mm. the business people who were looking to make money off of our hard work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It really, you know, that that division hasn't gone away by any means. Yeah. It's alive and well. So then fast forward to the 90s. You're on track for the 
to work with the USDA for the National Organic Program, yes? Well, it it was a bit of a circuitous track. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially the first I mean the first thing that had to happen was the organic law which was passed in 1990. Mm. And I was involved in helping in that effort to get that passed and again the story is told in my book. I can sound I can keep repeating it <laughs> but it it is a in, a very interesting story because it was a totally unprecedented success that was created by a coalition of organic farmers organizations and consumer organizations and environmental organizations mm-hmm. that lobbied for this bill and it was passed in the Farm Bill of 1990, despite the objections of USDA that didn't want to have anything to do with it. Wow. And despite the fact that the the House Ag Committee refused to even hold hearings on it. So how did it pass? It passed on a floor vote. Wow. Because of all of the grassroots lobbying effort yeah. that had been done. How cool and, is you know, that? The, yeah. Yeah. So that and that I think is still on you know hasn't been repeated at yeah. any point in legislative history. So that was an amazing accomplishment. I don't take any credit for having done any lobbying. I but I did you know try to try to get the organic farmers that I worked with on board with it with mixed success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. So your book in your book you're telling this whole story on how we yep. went from not having any uh, national organic certification program to now we have it. Right. So when right. when did this certification program actually show up then? Well, it took a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure. First of all, of course, there was no funding allocated to implement this new law. <laughs> of course not. Right. Uh-huh. Of course not. It was assigned to one staff member, and it wasn't at USDA, and he wasn't given a budget for anybody to work with him on it. And <laughs> they did. There was, however, a federal advisory board written into this bill, which is called the National Organic Standards Board, and that's funded separately under the Advisory Committees Act. So by, in 1992, I believe, they finally got a little bit of money to actually appoint the National Organic Standards Board. And so they got to work on it, even though there was no USDA staff, really, mu- not much of any, to support them or right. to actually write the regulations. Mm-hmm. So um, fast forward a couple of more years, and I was basically recruited by the then beginning of, by those who were hired more recently under the new administration in Washington (laughs) that was a little bit more friendly to the whole thing and actually budgeted some money to implement this program. So they were they were authorized to hire some more staff, and they approached me to 
see if I would be interested in moving to Washington D.C. to write regulations. And wow, <laughs> did you? I I ended up doing it. Yes. Wow. For a couple of years. <laughs> so mid 70s to mid 90s you're 20 years yep. you're 20 years into this project and you I'll bet you hadn't been paid at all until that point yeah. well um i i was paid starting in like i'd say 1984 all right. uh, with that consulting project right began to began to actually that was kind of the beginning of developing my consulting business it was all right. also i had finished my master's program and you know I have stories about that too <laughs> I had published uh, a book that I had written as a as a graduate project uh-huh. which is also I'll I will put in a plug for that because it's one of my my proudest accomplishments wow. it's called the the soul of soil oh and it's nice about ecological soil management it's a manual of ecological soil management and after it was published by the extension service at UVM in 1983 it was published and uh, then they gave it to me to do what I want with it when they sold out their printing and uh, I drafted my colleague and mentor Joe Smiley to help me update, revise, and publish it. We've published it ourselves. Nice. At, at that time, and it's gone through a, a couple of more revisions and is now published by Chelsea Green and is still in print. Oh, nice. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank Congratulations you. Congratulations on that. So the reason I asked a minute ago that you know about you not getting paid for 10 or 20 years is, uh, yeah. th- honestly, this is looking like sainthood to me. Um, having done everything, well, I, I did. I mean, I was doing things that would earn me a living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, barely. But, but doing, including market gardening. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was earning a little bit of my uh-huh. living as a market gardener yeah. for a number of years. I did that for a while. I understand that. In mm-hmm. my in my podcast, and I, I I call out epic when I see it, and there are moments that just move me and this is one of them and I have to tell you the work that you did for the decade and before 84 and the you know the decade since that is epic in my book so I just want to take a moment and thank you for having created this because we have we have some structure in place now that allows us to call things organic in part thanks to you so thank you well, I'm I'm touched and mm. and very moved and thank you for for saying that because I have to I have to say that there's still a number of people including some people I've known for 40 years who aren't so pleased about what I did. Mm, well. You know what? We can't make everybody happy. So, there you no. there you have it. <laughs> I I ended up working for USDA for five years and managed to get my keychain before I left. Yeah. <laughs> and for the first two two of those years, I was in I was based in Washington, 
which is a whole saga in itself. <laughs> I'm sure. And then I told him, well, I, I only promised you two years, and I'm, I have to go home now and move back to Vermont. And if you want me to keep working on this, I, you have to figure out a way for me to do it from there. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. So the last three years, I was working from home in Vermont and mm -hmm. going back to Washington every couple of months for a period of time um, to work on the rules. And the rules took, well, when I got there in 1994, nothing had been done yet yeah. <clears throat> to actually write the rules. I mean, the, the National Organic Standards Board had meanwhile held a bunch of public hearing, public meetings and taken a lot of public input and created a set of recommendations, and that was really helpful. Right. But it wasn't regulatory language. It wasn't, you know, it, it w wouldn't work <laughs> to, to have these guys writing the regulations. It's not possible. Yeah. And a lot of people are under the misconception that, you know, oh, the NOSB wrote these wrote the regulations, and USDA ignored them and wrote something entirely different. Well, it's hardly the case. <laughs> but, you know, we had to do, we had to follow yeah. the law very carefully. Right, it's a process. Once you get it to that level, it's a process that you, you know, and you have to kind of go down that road. And, you know, and I one of the things that I point out is that when I got to USDA, I I had never even read a federal regulation in my life. You <laughs> Oops. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I I do did have the advantage of having been brought up by a lawyer, so I uh, knew how to argue with them. Yeah, got it. <laughs> got it. That you know, it was a huge learning curve, um, not just for me, but it was a it was and still is a totally unprecedented kind of program yeah. uh, at USDA. Yeah. And nobody had any clue how to how to create this program. Yeah. Well, that's why they brought you in uh, to help figure it out. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the best help they could give us was a guy down the hall from us who worked on peanut regulations mm -hmm. for 20 years, you know. <laughs> it's like, you're going to yeah. write rules that cover every possible agricultural commodity? Yeah. Are you kidding? Wow. Wow. So what's the upshot of this? Where, where, where did we end up in the, early, in the late 90s or early 2000s? And yeah, where did we end up? Well, there are, there, it's a kind of a one step forward, two steps back, or maybe vice versa. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. We we had, there's one, one more epic, epic moment that that is probably one of the major motivators for, have, for having to write the book that I've written. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, the fi finally, we finally got to creating a, a proposed rule for the whole program. And that was 1997, mm -hmm. three years into it. And it had to get signed off by every single agency in USDA, plus EPA, FDA. Oh, my gosh. Uh, to, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. I mean, it was 
massively complicated. But then it had to also get signed off by the Office of Management and Budget. And so there was this <laughs> little, yeah. So, But it had been signed off on by, uh, by the Secretary of Agriculture. At the time, it was Dan Glickman. Uh-huh. And it was a rule that I was pretty, pretty proud of, actually. But what OMB decided was that certain provisions had to go. OMB? Such as, OMB. Such as our prohibition on the use of GMOs. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Right. So the upshot of, it, of that was that we ended up having to publish something that was a last-minute attempt to to salvage the real the real heart of it, which had been totally eviscerated by OMB's. What is OMB? Uh, uh, the Office of Management and Budget. Oh, all right, cool. Yeah, and put out this proposed rule at the end of 1997, and ended up getting. Um, and it was also the first time that a regulation had been published that the public could comment on through the internet. And wow. we got we I, I think we I think the record we set for that is still not been surpassed two hundred and eighty thousand negative public comments. Two hundred and eighty thousand. Two hundred and eighty thousand. Wow. Yeah. And so basically had to go back to the drawing board <laughs> and start, you know, responding to the comments and there was the decision was made to pull the 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 regulation entirely and start over with a new proposal. In nineteen ninety seven. And that was a Huge, I mean, huge setback. Yeah. And there was a lot of opposition that was based on misinformation mm-hmm. about about the rule, and and that story is really the the beginning of some of the problems that I think have continued to create a huge polarization and divisiveness within the organic community. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's so, what I'm trying to uh, to address by writing this book. Yeah. So when did we end up with regulations that actually could be called an organic certification? Yeah. The final the final rule was published in the year 2000. Wow. And it required a two-year implementation period to allow people who wanted to label their products as organic mm-hmm. to become certified by an accredited certifying agent. So the program involved not just organic standards, but it, it involved a whole set of uh, requirements for how a, a certifying agent could become accredited by USDA, how an organic enterprise could become then become certified mm-hmm. by that accredited certifying agent. 
So that took it took two years for that to be in place, and uh-huh. after as of 2002, the USDA organic seal could be used oh. on products. Yeah, 84 to 2002. Mm-hmm. That's 18 years. Wow. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. That's uh, that is uh, an an epic life's work. Thanks. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. <laughs> well, I, I I sort of have alluded to that that epic failure, which is more of a of a defeat. Uh huh. It was a failure in that I I think that the I did not find a way to communicate what I had done and why it was it should be supported to mm. the people in the community who should have supported it. Yeah. So that was a a failure. There were I I can think of a whole list of what I should have done. <laughs> but what's the learning? Or what we should have done. But it, I definitely learned some lessons. Yeah. Definitely learned some lessons from that. Well, and obviously you learned them well enough to get something passed by 2002, finally. Uh, yeah. And to some extent, it was lessons that were learned by the higher-ups at USDA <laughs> as right. well. Right. You know, they they were, you know, happy to go along with what OMB had requested required of us and nobody expected they they didn't expect I think those of us on the staff who were who knew what what was going on out there knew that there would be a huge uproar and people would be very upset with with these with this new proposal but the USDA officials really didn't have a clue how bad it would look yeah and I think that they greased the skids to uh, to make <laughs> make things a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I think <laughs> my biggest success is having written some darn good standards. Mm, yes. I I really I I have. Uh, you know, even though there's still a lot of misunderstanding about the whole thing and and controversies and certainly things that need to be improved, uh-huh. it was I I consider it to be a, a huge achievement, and I'm very proud of what I did. Nice. So, what drives you? Huh. Well, I think you know the subtitle of my book sort of says what drives me i i feel very strongly i mean right now particularly mm-hmm. the planet is in dire straits yeah and it it is uh, human health is in dire straits and certainly mm-hmm. you know social justice and human liberation is taking a big hit these amen. days yes amen to that so the sub- um, so you know, real food, soil, soil health are key to 
really addressing many of those problems. And right now, my big push is that you know organic farming is definitely one important strategy to begin to mitigate and reverse climate change. Yeah. The more organic acres we can get in production, the the faster we're going to solve that problem. Yeah. If we ever will. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's that's really what's motivating me to keep getting out there and going to conferences and having book events and talking to as many people as I can. And I'm certainly not alone in that, in that, but it, and people are beginning to realize how big a role agriculture does play in the global climate. Um, So that's just one aspect of it. It also happens to, you know, clean, give us clean water, uh, <laughs> toxin free, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. More biodiversity, you know, you, you can keep listing all the good things that it does, but right now climate change is the thing that yeah. scares me the most. Yeah, exactly. So I'm all about education and I have to know, is there a book that was influential for you in this process along the way? Well, certainly the the books I was reading in the 70s when I was learning all about this stuff, mm-hmm. I would say that the two most influential books at that point were, first of all, Wendell Berry's The Unsettling of America. Mm, absolutely. And the second book that was... Extremely influential was Francis Moore LePay and Joseph Collins' Food First. Yeah. So between the two of those, it essentially gave me the understanding that, you know, we we definitely know what we need to do in order to fix a lot of the problems of the food system and agriculture, but what we absolutely have to deal the the way that it's going to happen is going to have to be through political action Hmm. it isn't going to happen by just telling everybody that information is there yeah yeah ground up yeah so what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners or should i ask what final piece of advice do you have for young food activists well, funny you should ask that. <laughs> that the, the, the epilogue of my book uh-huh. is called Advice to a Young Food System Activist. So uh, if you will permit me to read uh, a page and a half of that. I would, would that... I would love that. Bring it on. Okay. So here we go. I'll start, start here. So as I finish telling the story of my own journey along this path, I rededicate what remains of my own life to promoting the widest and fastest possible adoption of organic methods as they may be adapted to work within the particular human culture and ecology where they are practiced. This means political, economic, and social revolution, by the way. (laughs) To the young farmers and food system activists who must carry this work forward on the ground, 
I hope the lessons embedded in my story will prove beneficial. In case my message has been too subtle, here are a few important points to keep in mind. Basic goodness means there's no us and them. We're all in this together and have to unlearn habits of thought that see any human being, not to mention any other species, as alien or other that is assumed to be a threat. That our Western capitalist political economy is predicated on such beliefs is the dirty secret that is now, with the resurgence of movements such as Black Lives Matter being exposed repeatedly. The enemy is not other people. The enemy is racism and all its related isms that allow any fellow human to be brutalized for the sake of our own need for security and comfort. I have long campaigned against the demand for purity in the context of organic food and farming. This is related to my gut reaction to the demand for purity advocated by the openly racist segments of society, most especially the Nazis who were the evil boogie persons of my childhood. Mm -hmm. My feminist and sexual liberation impulses are similarly repulsed by the repression of women in the name of virginal purity and beyond that its connotations of whiteness and refinement. Which brings us to the connection between food and racism. The story of sugar in a way encapsulates the horrific consequences of the quest for purity in the food system. A similar story could be told about the fate of our major cereal grains, especially corn, wheat, and rice, in which whiteness and purity have been valued to the detriment of health and nutrition. Not to mention cotton, the foundation of industrialization of the West, built on slave labor that was justified in the minds of its perpetrators by relegating its victims to less-than-human status. As impurities have been refined out, the social status of foods such as white sugar, white flour, and white rice has been elevated, while at the same time their life-giving qualities have been diminished. The addictive qualities of both refined carbohydrates and refined hydrocarbons is not a coincidence. (laughs) That the production, processing, and manufacture of foods and textiles from these now lifelessly pure products is predicated on an exceptionally vicious dehumanization of brown and black people by those of Euro-Caucasian descent is a shameful and sordid chapter of our history that lives on at the very core of our so-called civilization. So the demand for purity is antithetical to the need for health. Purity requires monoculture. Purity rejects our symbiotic relationship with the teeming microbiome that contributes the huge majority of our metabolic well-being, but instead strives for an illusory sense of germ-free safety. But some purity can be good and beautiful the rare and exquisite product of well-crafted artifice. That's a different aspect that we should not forget any more than we should turn the tables on racists by making them into the enemy, any more than we should seek to eliminate CO2, a waste product and pollutant in excessive levels, from our atmosphere or our bloodstream. Much of the damage to the true organic vision, as I have tried to elucidate it, has been done by those who earnestly believe that organic food must be pure and that ideological purity must trump political compromise. 
to overcome this belief, we need compassion for our own inner fascist. (laughs) At this moment, it is critical to the health of our Gaian respiratory metabolism that we freely share this vision with everyone, even even with those whose political views or position of extreme wealth and power we may despise. The hour is late. Do as much as you can, but learn to be patient. Be kind, but be persistent. Wow. Be kind, but be persistent. Yes. Wow. I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Grace. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, they can go to my website, which is uh, www.organic-revolutionary.com, mm-hmm. and there they can find a button to click on to buy the book or nice. the ebook. Yep, perfect. And the book is Organic Revolutionary, a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation which you can find at organic-revolutionary.com. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash grace. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? 
Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.